Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. It's the funniest comedy since laughter began. Of a wife who spent the summer away. And a husband who stayed home to play and play and play. Because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you. Very quickly and very hard. Wait a minute! With Marilyn Monroe soaring to new heights as the screen's most lovable laugh getter. Everything's fine. A married man, air conditioning, champagne and potato chips. Just a wonderful party. Tom Ewell, who created the original role on Broadway. Evelyn Keyes, Sonny Tufts, Robert Strauss. This is what they call classical music, isn't it? Yes. I could tell because there's no vocal. Shh. Don't talk. Let it sweep over you. Relax. Go limp. Like this? I've been married for seven years. And I'm afraid I'm coming down with what you and Dr. Steichel call the seven-year itch. <laughs> what am I going to do? If something itches, my dear sir, the natural tendency is to scratch. I scratched last night. There was this young lady. Hi. Uh, we forgot about the stairs. Isn't that silly? It was very easy. I just pulled out the nails. Oh. It's perfectly safe. Nobody will ever find out. Well, where shall I sleep? Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Seven-Year Itch from 1955. The studio was 20th Century Fox. Release date was June 3rd, 1955. The running time, 105 minutes, and it was in color. Leonard Maldon from his classic movie guide gives it three out of four stars. He writes, while Tom Yule's wife is vacationing in the country, wide-eyed Tom fantasizes about the sex pot who moves in upstairs. The film entered the ranks of pop culture when Marilyn Monroe stepped on the subway grating wearing a billowy white skirt. Marilyn is delightful in the film. So while this film is memorable because of obvious reasons, as Malton mentioned, the film is memorable to me for another reason. And it involves a fun conversation that I had with my then co-worker and friend, Alain, many years ago. Before I tell the story, it's important to point out that Alain was born and raised in France. And her English is excellent, I might add. Anyway, here's the story. We were eating lunch one day at work, as we often did. And Alain asks if I've ever seen the seven-year each. This is how she pronounced it. And I say, uh, I have not. Surprised, since I've seen many classic movies, as you guys know, she asks again, and I say, no, I haven't. And then she clarifies by saying, you know, the movie with Marilyn Monroe, you haven't seen it? And I pause, and I'm racking my brain, and I'm like, you mean the seven-year itch? And she replies, yes, that's what I said. And now this movie will always be remembered as the seven-year itch for me. And so thank you, Alain, and this episode is always going to be dedicated to you. 
Okay, let's get into the making of the film. To watch this film now, you probably wouldn't think that it's that risque. But back in 1955, this was as risque as it got. Between seeing arguably the most popular sex appeal actress of a generation on screen in somewhat skimpy outfits, along with the fact that the entire plot is essentially about infidelity, it was really groundbreaking for removing many of the social taboos that were rarely seen on screen. And even then, the film was heavily censored. The film is an adaptation of a 1952 Broadway play written by George Axelrod. The play was very popular and thus Hollywood was itching, pun completely intended, to get a film version as quickly as possible. However, live theater was much more open when it came to artistic freedom compared to the often and heavily censored motion picture industry and the Hayes Code. Now, we covered the Hayes Code in the Little Caesar episode with Metal Mike, so go back and watch that. But the quick recap is Hollywood agreed to self-censor itself in order to avoid government involvement with motion pictures. And with the seven-year itch, it was going to be an uphill battle to do a film adaptation, and the Hayes Code forbid any sort of film that had adultery as a subject of comedy or laughter. And that's essentially the whole plot of the seven-year itch. And because of this, Hollywood decided to hold off making the film version initially. However, screenwriter and director Billy Wilder was never one to shy away from a challenge and knew that the play would make a terrific film. Wilder was known for making films with subject matter that were once seen as taboo, like Double Indemnity and The Lost Weekend and Sunset Boulevard. So Wilder contacted Axelrod about buying the rights for the play for a film adaptation. And Axelrod said that the film couldn't be made until the play had completed its run on Broadway. So because of Wilder's involvement, Hollywood was, of course, interested again, and the studios were clamoring to obtain the rights. One studio in particular was a frontrunner due to having one of the most visually appealing actresses under contract, that being Meryl Monroe. Her career was doing extremely well with films like Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and How to Marry a Millionaire. She was even the first star to appear nude in Playboy magazine in 1953. Next was to figure out who was going to be the leading man opposite of Monroe. It had to be the so-called everyman instead of a well-known suave actor like Gary Cooper or William Holden. The studio wanted someone that wasn't necessarily handsome and also had a comedic touch, and that's why Walter Matthau was considered for the role. Wilder actually wanted Matthau, but the studio wasn't willing to take a risk on a newcomer at the time, so they rejected Matthau. The actor that starred on the Broadway version was Tom Yule, and that's why the studio went with him. Having an ordinary-looking actor instead of a heartthrob cast opposite of Monroe would be the ultimate male fantasy, because it meant millions of regular men who saw this film would believe they, too, would have a chance with one of the most beautiful women in the world. However, the Hayes office was a lingering black cloud over the script Billy Wilder was attempting to write. He tried to remove almost all hints at sex, and even the subject of adultery was carefully guided to not be overt in nature. The Hayes office was ruining comedy, and the fun from the original play. But Wilder really was a genius filmmaker, and simply having Monroe's presence on screen was often enough to get around any sort of censorship in the physical script. So when filming began, Monroe had just gotten married to New York Yankees great Joe DiMaggio. This was huge news, and gossip columns love this pairing. Sort of like what we're doing with in 2023 with Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Anyway, all of this helped sell Monroe's films very well, especially her upcoming film, The Seven-Year Itch. In addition to the Hayes office, the production of the film had to deal with the Catholic League of Decency, which held a lot of power at the time. For example, if this group felt that a movie was against their so-called morals, then they could tell all of their religious followers who went to church on Sunday to avoid a particular film. 
Sounds like an awesome group, huh? All the while, they ignore all the molestation from their own priest, but I digress. Back to the filming, it was around this time period that Monroe's trouble really began to surface, as she was battling depression and would often be distracted on set or forget her lines. But Wilder knew that no matter how troubled Monroe was in her personal life, and also caused difficulty when filming, having her presence on screen was worth the headaches because she sold the film. Once promotion of the film began, another story was making the rounds, which was the eight-month marriage between Monroe and DiMaggio, and that it was already starting to show cracks, as DiMaggio couldn't handle the spotlight and attention that Monroe received. It's one thing to be a baseball star, but that can't compete with movie stardom, and nobody was a bigger star than Marilyn Monroe. Plus, DiMaggio had outdated views that a wife should stay home and have children. But I hate to break it to you, slugger, you're married to one of the biggest sex symbols in film history. He has to get a clue. Suffice to say, this marriage was doomed from the start. And from various sources and books I've read, along with people that met him in real life, DiMaggio was one of the biggest pricks around. 20th Century Fox was so eager to release a completed film that they paid George Axelrod a $175,000 bonus for the permission to open the film before the play had even completed its Broadway run. That's a huge sum for 1955. It's the equivalent of $2 million today. Okay, let's get into the film. So it opens with a fun tile system as they open up and down to reveal the cast and crew. After the credits, we get a narrator explaining the origin of the city of Manhattan, way back to the Manhattan Indian tribe before the settlers. However, this origin is more of a fairy tale that pertains to this particular film. When the summer months rolled around and the heat was unbearable, the Indian husbands would send their wives to a cooler climate until the season changed. The husbands would stay behind to hunt for food in the sweltering heat. But, in reality, it allowed the husbands to lust after the non-married women who were left behind. The narrator then admits this film has nothing to do with Native Americans and were taken to modern times, being 1955, in Manhattan, New York. The point of the introduction was to show that after 500 years, nothing has changed. Manhattan husbands still send their wives and kids off to the country for the summer. We're then introduced to Richard Sherman. No, not the football player. (laughs) The character Richard Sherman, who is played by Tom Ewell, his wife Helen, played by Evelyn Keyes, and his son Ricky. They're at the train station as Helen and Ricky head to Maine for the summer. Richard has to stay back to work. Once they are on board, Richard heads home as a group of men follow an attractive woman, who's not leaving town, through the station. Richard vows to himself not to be one of the wolf husbands. Richard works for a small publishing company that produces pocketbooks that used to be cheap, that was 25 cents, and they were sold at popular drugstores way back when. While Richard isn't the boss, he essentially keeps the business running smoothly. In addition to his vow not to chase women while his wife is away for the summer, Richard also decides to try to eat healthy and not to smoke. Richard arrives home after eating at a vegetarian restaurant which serves dishes that are almost all soybean-based. I like this house. Why does Helen keep talking about moving into one of those big, enormous buildings that look like riot and cell block 11? So much nicer here. Just three apartments, ours, the Kaufman's upstairs, and then those two guys on the top floor, interior decorators or something. Peaceful with everybody gone. Sure is peaceful. 
No hardy duty, no Captain Video. No smell of cooking, no. What happened at the office today, darling? What happened at the office? Well, I shot Mr. Brady in the head, made violent love to Miss Mars, and set fire to 300,000 copies of Little Women. That's what happened at the office. What can happen at the office? It sure is peaceful. Use the opener, Richard. Carbonated water, citric acid, corn syrup, artificial raspberry flavoring, pure vegetable colors, and preservative. I would like Dr. Summers to explain to me why this stuff should be better for you than a little scotch, plain water, and a twist of lemon. I'd really like to know. Ellen's going to call it 10. Well, I guess I better do a little reading. I brought Dr. Brubaker's manuscript home with me and... Ricky. Okay. Where is it? Where is the other one? I know it's lurking here somewhere to get me. Where is Captain Video's other roller skate? Now, who's that? What is it? I'm terribly sorry to bother you, but I forgot the key to my front door, so I had to ring your bell. I feel so silly. It's perfectly all right. Anytime. Anything else I can do for it? Yes, would you mind pressing it again? Press what? The button. My fan's caught in the door. Oh. Oh, of course. Thank you. Do you live in our building? Yes, in the Kaufman's apartment. I took it for the summer while they're away in Europe. Well, isn't that nice? I know you'll be very happy here. It's a very charming little building. Very quiet. No dogs. No children. Just two interior decorators. And you. <laughs> and, of course, me. You all right? Oh, sure. Fine, fine. Well, good night. And good night. And we meet the girl, as she's called in the film. To make it easier, I'm just going to call her Marilyn. And just like that, in 30 seconds, Richard's whole summer outlook has changed, and who could blame him? However, Richard tries to take his mind off his new neighbor by reading a new book he's supposed to adapt for work. But that fails miserably as his imagination gets the best of him. That's for sure. Ten o'clock. Helen's not going to call till 10 o'clock. I hope this thing keeps me awake till 10 o'clock. <clears throat> Chapter 3. The repressed surge in the middle-aged male. Its roots and its consequences. You know, Helen has a lot of nerve calling me at 10 o'clock. It shows a very definite lack of trust. What do you think I'm going to do? Start smoking the minute she turns her back? 
Get drunk, maybe? Or tattooed? Charlie. Big green dragon. Honest. I bet she thinks I'm gonna have girls up here. You know, that's a terrible thing. Seven years we've been married, and not once have I done anything like that. Not once. I don't think I couldn't have either. Because I could have plenty. But plenty. <laughs> don't laugh, Helen. For your information, I happen to be tremendously attractive to women. You're attractive to me, darling. But then, of course, I'm used to you. This is not a thing that one likes to discuss with one's wife. But you might as well know that women have been throwing themselves at me for years. <laughs> That's right, Helen. Beautiful ones. Plenty of them. Acres and acres of them. Name one. It's hard, I mean, just offhand. There have been plenty of them, though. <laughs> All right, you ask for it. Take my secretary, for instance. To you, she's just nothing. A Miss Morris, a dictaphone, a piece of office furniture. Ten fingers to type my letters. Well, let me tell you. Miss Morris, did you type this letter? Yes, Mr. Sherman. There are six typographical errors in the first paragraph alone. What is the matter with you, Miss Morris? Well, I... Come now, Miss Morris. What is the matter with you? I'll tell you what's the matter with me. I'm in love with you. That's what's the matter with me. I have been ever since the first day I came here. Deeply, madly, desperately, all-consumingly. And what am I to you? Nothing. Just a piece of furniture, a dictaphone, ten fingers to type your miserable letters with. Mr. Sherman, take a look at me. I'm a woman. A woman, do you hear? With flesh and blood and nerves and feelings. I'm in love with you. I need you. I want you. I want you. I want you. That will be all, Miss Mars. Remember that torn shirt, don't you, Helen? Well, now you know how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> it got torn at the Chinese laundry. That's how it happened. What an imagination. What you don't realize, Helen, is this thing about women and me. I walk into a room, and they sense it instantly. I arouse something in them. I bother them. It's a kind of animal thing I've got. It's really quite extraordinary. The only extraordinary thing about you is your imagination. Richard keeps up his imaginary conversation with his wife as he tells another tale of when he was getting his appendix out and how the night nurse couldn't resist him. That was the day nurse. But you never saw the night nurse, did you? A certain Miss Finch. Poor Miss Finch. She fought it as long as she could. But then one night... Richard! Miss Finch, please. Not again tonight. We have so little time. Soon they'll be taking out your stitches and I'll have lost you forever. Please, Miss Finch. There is such a thing as ethics. Remember, you are a registered nurse. Ethics? Once I had ethics. Once I was young. Once I had ideals. Once I was registered. And then you happened. Miss Finch. For five nights now, you have been taking my pulse. I find it hard to believe that you have never noticed this simple band of gold. You bother me. 
You bothered me from the moment they wheeled you into that operating room. I can't understand it. There's a kind of animal thing about you. Please, Miss Finch. My adhesions. Let's crash out of here. Let's steal an ambulance and make a run for the border. Miss Finch, you're not fit to wear that uniform. You're rotten to the core. Beat me. Hit me. Beat me till your arms ache. You know I'll only come crawling back for more. Miss Finch, you're forcing me to take measures to protect you from yourself. That's what it was, Helen. <laughs> and this is why Richard is really good at his job. He can come up with crazy stories that will work for the cheap books that sell well. And by the way, the nurse, Miss Finch, was played by Carolyn Jones, who would go on to be best known for playing Morticia Adams in the original Adams Family television show. Richard then describes a walk on the beach with Helen's best friend, Elaine, while Helen played cards. And it turns into a parody of the famous From Here to Eternity scene originally done with Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr. Helen eventually calls Richard from Maine, and they catch up on her trip. After the call finishes, Richard tries to go back to reading, but of course, that doesn't happen. Maybe a twist of lemon would help this, or a shot of Worcestershire. What do you mean, what's the matter? This great cast iron chamber pot of yours practically kill me. That's what's the... Oh, oh, it's you. Well, hello again. What happened? Oh, golly, the tomato plant fell over. It sure did. I'm terribly sorry. Oh, don't worry. It's nothing. Nothing? Look at that poor chair. I'll pay for it, of course. I just hope it's not some priceless antique or something. Forget it. It's just early Sears robot. If there's anything at all I could do... Do? Do what? Really, there's nothing to worry about. I'm certainly glad you're not mad. Now promise me you won't even touch it. I'll have the janitor come down in the morning and take care of it. I'll pay him 50 cents. Well, good night. Hey, up there! Wait a minute! Yes? I'll tell you one thing you could do. That is, if you'd like to. I, I mean, if you're really not doing anything else more important. How would you like to come down here and have a drink with me? Maybe. Hmm? Why, thanks. I'd love it. You would? Sure, it'd be fun. Let me just go put something on. I'll go into the kitchen and get dressed. The kitchen? Yes, when it's hot like this. You know what I do? I keep my undies in the icebox. In the icebox? See in a minute. <laughs> in the icebox. <laughs> In the icebox, indeed. After Marilyn accepts the invite, all of Richard's inhibitions go out the window, and he decides to have a drink and a cigarette. Richard decides he needs to play some mood music, and again his imagination runs wild before Marilyn arrives as he imagines her in a long evening dress as he plays piano. Good old Rachmaninoff, the second piano concerto never misses. 
UK. I'm so glad. The second piano concerto. It isn't fair. Not fair. Why? Every time I hear it, I go to pieces. Oh. May I sit next to you? Please do. Pimply all over. I don't know where I am, or who I am, or what I'm doing. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't ever stop. Why did you stop? You know why I stopped. Why? Because. Because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you very quickly and very hard. In his fantasy, the pair kiss passionately as they sit next to each other on the piano stool. And then his daydreaming abruptly ends as the doorbell rings. But it's not Marilyn. It's the maintenance man who wants to pick up the rugs per Helen's request to be sewn. Richard pleads with the guy to come back the next day and he eventually kicks him out. Marilyn does eventually ring the doorbell and Richard decides to race to the door and then he trips and falls over Ricky's other roller skate. Marilyn isn't wearing a long evening dress, but still looks stunning in a matching pink blouse and slacks. Marilyn asks if he lives alone, which he anxiously says, yes, he lives alone, while holding a boy's roller skate. Hi. It's me, don't you remember? The tomato from upstairs. Oh, of course, the tomato. Come in, please, come in. Honestly, I feel sick about it. I don't know how it happened. I was up there watering the plants. I promised the Kaufmans I would. They don't even have a hose, so I was using the cocktail shaker. That's the only thing I could find. The cocktail shaker? Yes, a little silver one. Then suddenly there was this terrible crash. You know, you could have been killed. It was probably criminal negligence or manslaughter or something. You could have sued somebody. Me, probably. Well, not you, because you'd have been dead. But your lawyers could have. Oh, I feel just terrible. Look, case dismissed. I'm still alive, so what would you like to drink? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anything. Mm-hmm. You certainly have a nice place here. You live here alone? Yes, I, I live here alone. All alone. It's a roller skate. Mine, you know. Yours? It's adjustable. Oh, I go roller skating a lot in the park. <laughs> not really. What would you like to drink? You do drink, don't you? Oh, sure. I drink like a fish. Do you have gin? Of course. You mean straight gin? No, gin and soda, I guess. Gin and soda? Well, that's wrong, isn't it? It's scotch and soda. How do you drink gin? Well, there's gin and tonic, except I don't have any tonic. Then there's gin and vermouth. That's a martini. Richard makes Marilyn a martini, and while she marvels at the stairwell that goes to nowhere along with the fact that his apartment has air conditioning. Hey, you've got air conditioning. How does it work? Put it on. Sure. I got air conditioning in every room. Isn't the coffin place air conditioned? 
Gee, no. It's just terrible up there. That's why I bought the electric fan. <gasps> this feels just elegant. I'm just not made for the heat. This is my first summer in New York, and it's practically killing me. You know what I tried yesterday? I tried to sleep in the bathtub. Just lying there, up to my neck in cold water. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> but there was something wrong with the faucet. It kept dripping. It was keeping me awake. So you know what I did? I pushed my big toe up the faucet. I guess that's what they call American know-how. The only thing was, my toe got stuck and I couldn't get it back out again. You couldn't? No, but thank goodness there was a phone in the bathroom, so I was able to call the plumber. You call the plumber? Oh, sure. He was very nice. Even though it was Sunday, I explained the situation to him, and he rushed right over. Did everything come out all right? Oh, sure. But it was sort of embarrassing. Yeah, I could see how it might have been. <laughs> Honestly, I almost died. There I was with a perfectly strange plumber. And no polish on my toenails. <laughs> Marilyn then talks about the kind of work she does. Oh, you're an actress then? Sort of. I do the commercial part. Really? Honest, it's a very good part. First, they put a little gray makeup on my teeth to show what happens when you use ordinary toothpaste. Then they wipe it off again to show what happens when you use Dazzle Dent. I kind of sit there like this for about 14 seconds, and I get to speak lines, too. I had onions at lunch. I had garlic dressing at dinner. But he'll never know, because I stay kissing sweet the new Dazzle Dent way. You do that beautifully. Thank you. You know, people don't realize, but every time I show my teeth on television, I'm appearing before more people than Sarah Bernhardt appeared before in her whole career. Marilyn then remembers she has a bottle of champagne in her apartment due to it being her birthday, but isn't able to open it because it's too difficult for her. Richard, of course, knows how to open a bottle. So Marilyn races up to her apartment to get the bottle, along with a wardrobe change. But before Marilyn arrives, Richard gets another phone call from Helen as she asks for Richard to send her the canoe paddle that Ricky forgot to bring with him on the train. Sorry, I was on the phone, long distance. A friend of mine in the country calling about a kayak pa- Oh, say. I figured it just isn't right to drink champagne in matador pants. Would you mind fastening my straps in the back? <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Potato chips, champagne. You really think you can get it open? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've opened one or two before in my life. <laughs> it's simply a matter of uh, pressure and counter-pressure. <laughs> there she goes. Boy, you sure got powerful thumbs. <laughs> I used to play a lot of badminton. Get the glasses. Okay. Quick, quick, the glasses. <laughs> Seems to be stuck. <laughs> That's silly. Just give it a good yank. <coughs> this never happened before. It must be the vacuum. The suction of the bubbles creates a vacuum. Let me see if I can do it. I'll try to twist it. You're married. I am? Yes, I am. I knew it. I could tell. You look married. <laughs> Actually, my wife and I are separated. Oh. Well, what I mean is separated in the sense that she went away for the summer. Oh. 
Any children? No, no children. Well, just one, little one, very little, hardly counts. It's cold in there, awfully cold. Fingers getting numb. I could call the plumber. He's very good at getting things out of things. No, no, let's just keep the plumber out of it. Grab a hold of the piano. Careful, I had my appendix out last year. Are you all right? Fine. Are you sure you want to waste your champagne now that you know that I'm married? I think it's wonderful that you're married. I think it's just delicate. You do? Of course. I mean, I wouldn't be lying on the floor in the middle of the night in some man's apartment drinking champagne if he wasn't married. That's a very interesting line of reasoning. Sure, with a married man, it's all so simple. I mean, it can't possibly ever get drastic. Drastic? In what sense can it possibly get drastic? You may not believe this, but people keep falling desperately in love with me. Oh, I believe it. And suddenly, they get this strange idea in their heads. I believe that, too. Yes, they start asking me to marry them. All the time. I don't know why they do it. I think maybe it's a kind of nervousness. Maybe. Mm -hmm. All I know is I don't want to get married. Not yet, anyway. Getting married? That'd be worse than living at the club. Then I'd have to start getting in by one o'clock again. Very true. You probably would. At least occasionally. That's the wonderful part about being with a married man. No matter what happens, he can't possibly ask you to marry him. Because he's married already. Right? Right. Perfect logic, right? Now that marriage is out of the question, Richard relaxes and decides to just have fun with Marilyn. He plays some classical music, which... He likes, but Marilyn is more interested in dunking her chips into the champagne. Champagne and potato chips? It's just a wonderful party. Hey, look, you've got U.S. camera. I do? How about that? I've got U.S. camera. I bet I bought a dozen copies of this, but I don't have a single one left. Boys and people kept stealing them. Why would they do a thing like that? That's me. Right there on the beach. My hair was a little longer then. Did you notice? No, actually, I didn't. Let me ask you something. When they took this picture, there must have been some passers-by. I mean, uh, some other people around. I mean, how'd they keep the crowd back? Oh, it was taken very early in the morning. Nobody was even up yet. Except, you see that shadow right over there? What is it, a seagull? No, it was a Coast Guard helicopter. He kept buzzing the beach. Maybe you'd like for me to autograph this before I leave. People keep asking me to. Sure, sure. But you're not leaving yet, are you? How about some more champagne? Love some. Okay. Just freshen it. <laughs> oh, I'm awfully sorry. Here. <laughs> We should have some music, though. Do you play the piano? Well, not really. Not anymore. I used to, just a little, as a child. Go ahead. Play something. Well, all right. Let's see if I remember this. It's a little tricky.
<laughs> I don't know about Rachmaninoff with it shakes you and quakes you and stuff, but this really gets me. It does? And how? <laughs> I can feel the goose pimples. Goose pimples? Because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you very quickly and very hard. Hey, wait a minute! What happened? I kind of lost track. I don't know. Well, this is terrible. There's nothing I can say except that I'm terribly sorry. Nothing like this ever happened to me before in all of my life. This is unforgivable. The only possible excuse is that I'm not quite myself tonight. So maybe it'd be better if you would just go. Why? You're being silly. Please go. I must insist. Take your potato chips and go. Nice. You're crazy, that's what you are. You're running amok. Helen's gone for one day and you're running amok. Smoking, drinking, picking up girls, playing chopsticks. You're not gonna live through this summer. Not like this, you're not. Look at those bloodshot eyes. Look at that face. Ravaged, dissipated, evil. One of these mornings, you're going to look in the mirror, and that's all, brother. The portrait of Dorian Gray. Richard goes to work the next morning, but isn't himself after his evening with Marilyn. He meets with his boss, Mr. Brady, and asks for some time off to go spend with his wife in Maine. But his boss says it's only because he's been married for seven years that he's acting anxiously. Wait a few more years, and he'll absolutely enjoy that she's gone for the summer. Richard then looks up a study about the so-called seven-year itch, where when close to middle age and after seven years of marriage, the husband gets bored with his wife and looks to explore elsewhere, especially during the summer months. What's interesting is, why isn't there a seven-year inch for women? I'm sure there is for plenty. And in perfect movie timing, a psychiatrist comes into Richard's office to discuss a book adaptation, and Richard gets a brief psychoanalysis from his current situation with Marilyn. Dr. Brubaker to see Mr. Sherman. Oh, good afternoon, doctor. Oh, you're 15 minutes early. Yes, I know. My three o'clock patient jumped out of the window in the middle of his session. So you've been running 15 minutes ahead of schedule ever since. Which is the door? Uh, uh, this one. Hey, good afternoon, Mr. Sherman. Oh, Dr. Brubaker. I see you've been working on my little book, Man and the Unconscious. Yes, it's a wonderful book, Doctor. Very important. It has something in it for everyone. I think so. 
Not really, doctor. <laughs> you'll be happy to know that we're giving it a big promotion. The full treatment. Two months from today, you'll be seeing this cover in every drugstore in America. Of sex and violence? Well, we had to soup up the title a little. <laughs> and what, may I ask, sir, is this supposed to represent? Well, it represents Gustav Marheim. You remember, the mad lover of Leipzig, terrorizing one of his victims. Isn't that just sensational? <laughs> may I remind you, sir, that Gustav Marheim was a very small man with a large red beard? Doctor, you're quibbling. Nobody knows that. Well, they know it in Leipzig. And furthermore, may I point out to you, sir, that all of Myham's victims were middle-aged women. Now look, doctor, don't you think it'd be much more effective to show a man terrorizing a young and beautiful girl, sales-wise, I mean? Mr. Sherman, I'm not a salesman. I'm a scientist, a doctor. I heal sick minds. I find my small way to root out the insecurities, neuroses, inattentions. What is it, doctor? What are you looking at? Nothing, nothing. Does that mean something, Doctor? No, nothing serious. A storm warning, perhaps. <laughs> Dark clouds gathering on the psychic horizon. That's preposterous. A twitch in the thumb. A nerve or a muscle, probably. And you psychiatrists start making a federal case out of it. Of all the ridiculous. Tell me, Doctor, are you very expensive? Very. I'm sure you occasionally make exceptions. Never. Well, I mean, once in a while a case must come along that really interests you. At uh, $50 an hour, all my cases interest me. I mean, if you should run into something really spectacular, for instance, another Gustav Marheim. Doctor, you wouldn't believe this, but last night I found myself terrorizing a young lady. That could, of course, account for the thing. Well, actually, it wasn't that bad. I'm exaggerating. I just made a little boo-boo. Uh, psychoanalysis does not recognize the boo-boo as such. Everything we do has its roots in the unconscious. Believe me, doctor, I was completely conscious. I told her to go. I told her to take her potato chips and go. Potato chips, if you please. All right, doctor. Doctor, I'm in serious trouble. I'm married. Serious trouble, married, so far absolutely normal. I'm coming down with what you and Dr. Steichel call the seven-year itch. What am I going to do? If something itches, my dear sir, the natural tendency is to scratch. I scratched last night. You see, there was this young lady, then suddenly everything went black, and I terrorized her. That is, I attempted to terrorize her. From the way you phrase it, I assume the attempt was unsuccessful. Oh, definitely. All I did was knock us both off the piano bench. Let me understand this. You attempted to terrorize a young lady on the piano bench? Yes. And on whose person was this obviously maladroit attempt committed? Here, doctor. I brought this with me. I didn't want to leave it lying around the house. That's her. Her hair was a little longer then. It's called textures, because you can see the three different textures. The driftwood, the sand, and her. It got honorable mention. Splendid. I congratulate you on your good taste. Interesting driftwood formation, too. However, you ask for my advice, I give it to you. Do not attempt it again. If you should, however, give yourself plenty of room to work in. In any case, do not attempt it precariously balanced on a piano bench. Such an attempt is doomed from the start. Look, doctor, I love my wife. Don't be old. 
Your time is up. If you should find yourself in need of further analysis, simply from the office, the nurse will arrange for an appointment. As for my book, we will resume discussion at such time as you have subsided. Suppose this girl tells somebody about this. Oh, if she tells anybody about this, I'll kill her. I'll kill her with my bare hands. A possible solution. I submit, however, that murder is the most difficult of all crimes to commit successfully. Therefore, until you are able to commit a simple act of terror, I strongly advise you to avoid anything as complex as murder. One must learn to walk before one can run. Thank you, and goodbye. Richard's imagination then runs wild again as he imagines that Marilyn is telling everyone that she can about their evening, which spreads throughout the neighborhood with the gossip that will ruin his marriage. The word is spreading. It's spreading. It's like jungle drums. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's talking about it. Television. I forgot she's on television. 50 million television sets in America. And now with a coaxial cable. I had onions at lunch. I had garlic dressing at dinner. But he'll never know because I stay kissing sweet. The new dazzled end way. And now that I have your attention, I want to warn all you girls and women of New York about an evil, dangerous, perfectly dreadful married man who lives downstairs in my building. His name is Sherman. Richard Sherman. S-H-E-R-M-A-N. But his lovely wife and son are in Maine for the summer. This monstrous man is terrorizing young girls. Mommy, mommy, come quick! They're talking about daddy on television! Then he makes them sit on the piano bench. Then he makes them play chopsticks. Then suddenly he turns on them, his eyes bulging, his mouth frothing, just like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, I might as well face it. She knows everything. She knows, she knows, she knows. Then again, maybe she doesn't. Richard decides that he needs to call Helen immediately in Maine to find out if she knows or not about his evening with Marilyn. Now, we all realize this is ridiculous, but that's exactly the type of person that Richard is. In any case, she's out with Ricky and left a message with the clerk at the lodge about remembering Ricky's paddle. Of course, she has no idea about Marilyn, because why would she? Now, Richard is feeling great and heads home. When he gets home, Marilyn is blow-drying her hair in the window. Richard is polite, but tries to avoid conversation with her. But then Richard's wild imagination gets the best of him, and he convinces himself that a man Helen met on the train from the neighborhood is trying to make the moves on her while in Maine. And of course, you know where this type of thinking will lead for Richard. So now he can rationalize another date with Marilyn. So the pair go out to see the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's an air-conditioned movie theater, after all. And she's wearing the famous white dress that dons the movie poster that we all know and love. And we finally get to see one of the most iconic scenes in film history, even if it's very brief. Didn't you just love the picture? I did. But I just felt so sorry for the creature at the end. Sorry for the creature? What'd you want him, to marry the girl? He was kind of scary looking, but he wasn't really all bad. I think he just craved a little affection, you know, a sense of being loved and needed and wanted. That's a very interesting point of view. <laughs> Ooh, do you feel the breeze from the subway? Isn't it 
doesn't it? Well, what do you think would be fun to do now? I don't know. It's getting pretty late. It's not that late. The thing is, I have this big day tomorrow. I really have to get to sleep. What's the big day tomorrow? Tomorrow I'm on television. You remember I told you about it? The Dad's Dent Hour? Dazzle Dent Toothpaste. It's funny, you know, I don't think I ever tried it. You should. It's excellent toothpaste. Is it? Oh, yes. I use it myself. Oh, then you do recommend it. I mean, off the record, between friends. Definitely. It costs only a few pennies more than ordinary toothpaste, but a recent survey shows that 8 out of 10 oral hygiene... Now you sound like a commercial again. If I believed every commercial I heard. <laughs> you can believe this one. Every word of it. What's that you say on the program? He'll never know because I stay kissing sweet the new Dazzle Dent way? <laughs> now, really. It's true. I'll prove it to you. Well? My faith in the integrity of American advertising is somewhat restored. You see? However, before I go to all the trouble of switching brands, I want to make absolutely certain. I just cannot understand people like the Kaufmans, a successful businessman, probably makes 15000 a year, spends a fortune collecting African sculpture, but he will not put in air conditioning. I'll bet it was 95 in the bedroom last night, like an oven. Poor kid, it's awful. Good night. Of course, if you wanted to drop by my place for a few minutes, just to cool off before you face that Turkish bath up there. Well? I left the air conditioning on full blast. It's cool in there. Probably too cold. Or maybe just for a few minutes. Sure. To bring the body temperature down a little. The way I feel about air conditioning is, no matter how much it costs, if there's no bread in the house, if you've got to sell the kids' bonds, I always say, in the summertime in New York City, you've got to have air conditioning. Just feel that. So yes, the subway grate and Marilyn's dress blowing up only lasts a few seconds, but it's arguably the scene that people remember the most in her film career. For this scene, a large crowd saw film history while the scene was being shot. Monroe had noticed before the take that her underwear was almost see-through, so she wore two pairs of panties when she actually did the take on film. The onworkers cheered and commented to take after take as a distracted Monroe repeatedly missed her lines. And all the while, an agitated Joe DiMaggio watched from the side, visibly upset. But Monroe was almost delighted by the attention, whereas DiMaggio was humiliated. It became clear that Monroe's first priority was her career, and DiMaggio couldn't handle that. Weeks later, the couple split. But the publicity of that scene did wonders for the film and, of course, her career. Ironically, these original shots were never actually used in the film because there was too much commotion and noise from the onlookers. What you see in the actual film came from a studio lot at a later date. Also, after the Hayes office was finished, you barely saw any of Marilyn's body in the actual film from the train grate scenes. However, the famous publicity still photos were from the original crowd shots. All right, there's about 30 minutes left, and what's going to happen with Richard and Marilyn? Is air conditioning really the trick to get Marilyn in the mood for whatever devilish scheme Richard has? Or is he simply too attached to his wife to try anything? And even if nothing happens, what's going to happen when Helen and Ricky return to Manhattan? 
Well, it's all answered in the very amusing final portion of the film, and yes, there's plenty more crazy fantasy scenes from the mind of Richard. So I would say, with the exception of Some Like It Hot, many feel, including myself, this is one of Marilyn Monroe's top films. And while Tom Yule is definitely enjoyable in the hapless married man role, frankly, anyone could have played his part, people still watch this film today because of Marilyn Monroe. Nobody could have made more out of that role than her which is a testament to her acting talents, not just her beauty. She simply wasn't given enough credit for acting, sadly. All right, there were a couple deleted scenes. One was in the bathtub, and so there was an edited version showing Monroe in the tub with bubble suds while a plumber attempts to get her toe out of the faucet. The punchline that wasn't shown was that when the plumber dropped his tools into the tub and got him out all full of suds. There was another deleted scene at the subway. It's a longer scene where you get to see more of Marilyn, Again, still very tame by today's standards. All right, some fun facts. The film was a huge success and made Marilyn Monroe an even bigger star, but Monroe wanted to be known as more of a serious actress instead of simply a blonde bombshell. Monroe never felt she was given enough credit for her acting abilities and simply was judged on her looks. However, after the success of the film, Monroe was given full rights over which scripts and directors she wanted to work with, something that most actors under the studio contract system were never given. Because of this and her off-screen troubles, she only appeared in five more films before her tragic death in 1962. The film actually opened on Monroe's 29th birthday, and she attended the premiere with her ex-husband, Joe DiMaggio. And an important promotional campaign was released for this film, including a 52-foot-high cutout of Marilyn from the blowing dress scene, and it was placed in front of Lowe's State Theater in New York City's Times Square. So Billy Wilder preferred shooting in black and white. But Marilyn Monroe's contract with Fox called for all of her movies to be shot in color. Monroe always thought that she looked far more attractive and glamorous in color than in black and white. However, five years later, she would appear in arguably her greatest film, Some Like It Hot, in black and white. According to George Axelrod, the reason that girl has no name is because he, nor Billy Wilder, could think of one. One person's name I never forget is Lindsay, and she has never seen this film, so I get her fresh take on the seven-year itch, so let's find out what she thinks, and then I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random film from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Lindsay. Welcome back. Hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back on the show. Are we doing the seven-month itch between you and I? The seven-month itch? We haven't yeah. even... Well, It's no. been about seven months, right? We don't have it. Do you have itch? No. I don't have itch. I get cream for that. So. It's not relevant yet. Good point. In any case, so um, you've heard about this film, and but when I asked you if, um, if you had actually seen a Marilyn Monroe movie, you really couldn't think of any. I'm not sure I actually have. Kind of embarrassed to admit, but... Truth but be told, I couldn't think of one. But it shows how iconic she is because you never actually really watch a movie, but you know all about her. Well, yeah. I feel like I've seen every documentary anybody's ever made about her I've watched. Obviously, she's had such a sad adult life, which is, I mean, I don't know, like to see such an iconic star and know they've had such a tough time. I mean, it's, uh, you know, kind of an age-old scenario, but it's quite sad when you think about it. But yeah, I think a lot of people know about her even if they've never seen Mm-hmm. One of her films, and I guess that's a little bit strange, but um, yeah, I, I almost feel like I did know her and had seen her films, although I have to be honest, from start to finish, I think this is the first one I've ever watched straight through. There you go. Oh, I would recommend, I mean, this is fine. This really showcases her. She's in most of the movie, even though she's not the the main, well, she is technically the main star, but Tom Yule gets, he's in it every single scene. Um, 
because it's basically his fantasy. People remember this, of course, for the famous dress-blowing scene, but really her best film is Some Like It Hot, um, so you need to check that one out. But, uh, okay, so you watch this, and again, we <laughs> we kind of had fun with this one because it is so kind of dated in the 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 male point of view, I guess, and how ridiculous it is, but it is supposed to be a farce. How did this... Just give me your data dump of how you thought this film doesn't hold up, does hold up, was it entertaining? Can you suspend modern beliefs and just enjoy it for what it is? Let's see. Well, undoubtedly, modern beliefs are going to poison the well a little bit on this one because I think that's just where we're at in the world. Um, I will admit my feelings when I started this film were certainly ones of kind of irritation and annoyance and some eye rolls. But by the end, I really came to accept it for what it was. And it, it almost like won me over. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was able to put aside maybe some of the social mores of today that I know are, um, you know, not going to stack up against these, right? That they, they look a little bit different. So in the beginning, I could definitely feel myself not thrilled. Mm -hmm. But by the end, I think I was feeling much more content and okay and appreciative of what it was. So there is that. It is very much told from that male perspective. And clearly, Tom Yule's character is a bit delusional in oh, the sense that, yeah. I mean, but again, if you allow yourself to recognize that the delusion is more about the character and his own character flaws mm -hmm. than it necessarily is about an essay on the 1950s sure. and male and female relationships, if you can separate those things, then I think it's fine and it actually becomes pretty funny and entertaining. Right. But admittedly, based on the time in which I grew up, mm -hmm. so the 19, you know, I was born in the late 70s, so 1980s and, you know, into the 90s becoming a teenager, sure, it it definitely feels a little bit rough at times. It's like the the way this guy is portraying women, it's it's as if, you know, he's married to this this lovely lady. Mm -hmm. He has a son, you know, she clearly takes care of the house, takes mm -hmm. care of things, whatever. And it's almost like, gosh, when summertime comes and she does the, you know, the mom-son family trip, she's like, he can't wait for her to the get out of here. The old ball going, and chain, yeah. thank God she's gone. I'm going to do all this stuff. And how awful she is because she makes me not want to, like, drink and smoke and do all these, you know, things that I want to do. And so, like, yeah, when you start with that in the beginning and you think about the time period I grew up, I'm like... I roll like no woman wants you like you know it's you go almost a little bit defensive to the plate right. especially uh, arguably the most beautiful woman of her era the, the, which makes it even more of a farce and certainly the most famous right yeah. like there's no doubt about it and it, another thing that got me in the beginning now I warmed to it over the course sure. of the film is that I know she was not an unintelligent woman no. and sadly the way they have her playing this character, which became kind of a norm for her, yeah. is your quintessential, like, ditzy blonde. Yep. And the problem is, you know, she kind of comes across as stupid. Yeah. And the reality is she's not. Mm. And she actually plays a lovely person mm -hmm. who actually is very nice. Like, today, 
I mean, I could see so many ways in which her character in this film, if it were remade today, would have turned into the sexual aggressor in this situation. Whereas here, she had every opportunity to push even harder than she did, and she didn't. And the way she kind of hung it out there was, his wife is so lucky. Right. Kind of thing. Now, I don't think that this film is totally forgiven in the sense that I think the takeaway at the end, you know, the last scenes, which we won't discuss, is supposed to be leaving you with this sense of, hey, this is a good guy Mm -hmm. because he didn't cheat on his wife, even though he had America's most iconic movie star, who they even made a nod to Marilyn Monroe in the film, which you pointed out, which was funny. Yeah, because she doesn't have a character name in the film. No, she's just the girl, girl, right? There's literally no name to to her character. I think we're supposed to leave, though, feeling like, oh, wow, what an upstanding man, because he had an opportunity to cheat on his wife, and he didn't. Right. But there are plenty of scenes where this is... This is pecking get in. He would have if he, she if she didn't like kind of like what are you doing? Exactly, yeah. and also I mean you know he, they've kissed multiple times yeah. in the film, and it's not like I'm, you know I mean I know he didn't do the deed, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it didn't feel like he should be absolved at the end of this right. film. I guess is what I'm trying. I to think say. a lot of what he was doing. I'm not defending him, but he's just like he liked the hunt, and this is actually true for just. I think men and women in general, regardless of era, the hunt is a lot more like what's the old saying? The chase is better than the catch. I think once he actually thought he had a chance, then it freaked him out because then all the repercussions started running through his mind. And that's another thing. By the end, you're almost annoyed with the character. He's so paranoid and overthinking and, and everything. So it's like the fantasy is better than the reality. Yeah, and maybe that is the ultimate takeaway yeah. from what this is. But you know what? If he were a single guy living mm-hmm. in that apartment and she had moved upstairs, that might have been a great couple. But yeah. another aspect of this is... You know, reality is what reality is. And if you choose to go against it, there are repercussions for doing that. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I think his character was pretty paranoid. And um, I think that ultimately he probably wouldn't have had the, you know, as much as he tried to make it sound like he was the superior guy that could do whatever he wanted and live however he wanted. I think it turned out his world was pretty small. And Mm -hmm. I don't think he was ever going to have the guts to go through with something like that. Sure. And so to your point about the the chase being better than the catch and the fantasy being better than the reality, maybe there's a bit of a moral of the story to that is like, hey, you can think you're going to go sure. out there and and find all of the, this XYZ that's better than, you know, the life you have mm-hmm. grass is always greener. greener. Yep. But then if you try to pursue that new pasture... Reality's going to hit Reality's going to set in, right? And it's yeah. different than you think. What's sad is that she was actually a lovely lady that His was... His wife? Or, no, or Marilyn, Marilyn yeah. Monroe's character. She was a lovely lady. It sounded like she was working. At mm-hmm. one point, she showed him a photo of her in a book. She's a model. Yeah. She was a model, and she was having a successful career, you know, um, being photographed for some of these picture books mm-hmm. from the 1950s, and she was representing a toothpaste company mm-hmm. and doing advertising for them. So, like, she was taking care of her life and everything. Yeah. She she probably would have been a, a lovely person to date if he yeah. were in any position to do so. Right. Well, look, she, he's safe to her because he's just kind of this dork and then a married dork. She wanted air conditioning, too, because it was so hot there. So, I mean, she was just kind of being her. She really wasn't 
overly flirtatious. I think that's just her. It's just like, her. Yeah. And she wasn't really using him either because she didn't try to seduce him no. to get what she wanted. She no. actually asked for what she wanted. Yeah. Could I stay here for the air conditioning? Yeah. Could I do this? When when he invited her down, when the tomato plant oh, fell yeah. from her yeah. balcony onto his chair, you know, he she brought champagne yeah, and, and potato, potato chips. chips yeah. And so she always kind of... You know, she, she wasn't trying to be manipulative of no. him anyway. In fact, I think the irony of the whole thing, there's a lot of irony, so there's more yeah. than one. One of the other ironies of this story is that you think that he is the one that's having this fantasy about this amazing like woman that's like walking in, you know, mm-hmm. and that he's going to live out, you know, what, what he thinks is going to be like his most amazing summer, right? His hot guy summer. Right. But what really happens is that when she comes in, she's not intending to manipulate him, and she never does, because that's not the point. She's a nice lady. But she actually comes to appreciate the safeness and, and the and the warmth and, and sort of the humor and the comfort that he provides, mm-hmm. so much so that I think she almost becomes more interested mm-hmm. in what this could be, too. So it's almost like they both played out a bit of a fantasy yeah. here. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, so what were the funniest scenes that you can remember, or at least to you? Oh my gosh, there there actually were like were, a lot of because most ones. of this film is is his. Um, they're like dream sequences or yeah. fantasy sequences. Like I think it's hilarious how delusional it wasn't just about Marilyn. Like he figured, oh, his secretary must be in love with him, or yes. the nurses that took care of him. And then those that, were funny. That was fun with the wife who were basically laughing at him, saying like, "You're ridiculous." You're, yeah. you're like they didn't care a thing about you. I guess the only well, let me answer your question yeah, and yeah. I'll go back to that. Yeah, those were all kind of funny and eye rolly because mm-hmm. for sure he's like making up like he is some Don Juan and women yeah. like completely fall at his feet. Mm-hmm. I actually thought the scene the first scene when she came over with the the champagne and the potato mm-hmm. chips and the overfilling of the glass and that whole thing and him playing the rock on and off right yeah. on the regular there's a lot of good humor in that there are funny scenes in this but mostly it's just kind of like warm and yeah well mm-hmm. warm that's a good word for this film and i really love the way it feels like I know that they retouched the color on this in the deleted scenes uh, that you showed me on the DVD. Yeah, it's definitely been restored. Uh, and they remastered. restored and yeah. remastered it. And I think it looks beautiful restored and remastered because everything is super vivid and, mm-hmm. and lovely. And I love the apartment and I, I just love that time frame. that fifties and sixties, I'd say maybe like 19, like 55 to 1963, like, so many amazing things show up during that time mm-hmm. period. The look and the feel, and it reminds me of my grandparents. Um, but there were so many funny scenes. It's almost hard to pick one. Um, it is a little bit sad that they, the way they paint the wife, like, again, I'm trying to keep my head out of again, the, the modern day clouds, But again, this but, isn't her story. It's his story. No, no. And so, And he's, I know. he's a flawed guy. <laughs> I just think the sad part, and the point I was going to make, yeah. is that even though it's ultimately almost exposed about you know him not being able to deal with the fantasy when it falls in his lap mm-hmm. it kind of does paint the wife as a bit of a like what is the word i'm looking for here it it kind of makes her look like she's diminishing him in lots of capacities mm-hmm. which is a little sad because again modern hat on i could see where a man would look 
at that and just be like, well, this is why I'm unhappy anyway. Right. Because you're, you, you kind of diminish my manhood in all of these respects. And so the way that the wife like would laugh at him, oh, silly husband, of course yeah. that's not how it is, or how he well, would he get was... lipstick on his collar. Exactly. And, oh, that's just cranberry sauce or whatever But she that's said. why he was um, convincing himself that she must be hanging out with the, the neighbor, his friend, right. up at the lake. And so that give him gave him the right to pursue whatever he wanted, go out on the date with Marilyn. That was maybe another funny yeah. op, like opportunity in this where you also realize that at the same time he's struggling with his fantasy reality situation, yeah. he's also struggling with this thought of his wife maybe potentially doing the same thing up in Maine where right. she was for the summer. And it was not like, oh, cool, we're going to have hot guy and girl summer. It was like he was unhappy about it. He yeah. didn't want it. it the, the same thoughts of her doing what he was doing yeah, were very upsetting and yeah. it was total hypocrisy, yeah. right? But but again, the same way that they're painting the wife, even in the joking scene, which I thought was like a little... Yeah. This, no one said this was controversial, but I also thought it was kind of controversial uh, towards the end there where the wife is like, she walks in and she's like, oh, I shit. know there's a woman in here. Yeah. And it, it's funny. We're yeah. laughing at it. But at the same time, she like shoots him like six times on the stairs yeah. and you're like, oh my God, you know, n- no wonder people have the impressions of kind of the, the wifey poo the way yeah. they do. Because it's like, she seems horrible, but she's not. she's not. In his portrayal of the way she is, it's like, no wonder men want to be free of the battle axe. It's, <laughs> it's got a lot of weird stuff in it that I wouldn't have thought that it had. Yeah. But I think that's part of what made it good. Sure. It, the fact that I can actually bring up these scenarios that I'm thinking of having seen it and kind of empathizing with like lots of different angles yeah. from the male and the female perspective. Sure. But the first few minutes... You have to stick with it. Yeah, the first few minutes, maybe even more than the first few minutes yeah. that you watch this, if you're kind of like a woman born in the time frame that I've been born or after. Yeah. There are some rough moments in the beginning where you just are kind of like annoyed at this guy because yeah. he seems ridiculous. Yeah. You know, but, but he was ridiculous. But there's certain people like that that just can't watch old movies anyway because they can't get out of their own headspace. So, and that's fine. If that's well, their prerogative. That's their prerogative. I think if you allow yourself to think of this, not only from the time period, but if you actually flip the script on many of the... Sure scenes and the situations you can see that the film was smarter than it looks like it was if you're only looking through the lens of 1950s men and women versus 2020s men and women i think you'll miss a lot if you do that and i fully admit when i went in this in the beginning i'm like oh God, like it just felt exhausting to start, mm-hmm. um, but it got better. And one thing I'll say about the Tom Yule character, I think, again, if you allow yourself, he gets more likable through the course of the film. Sure. It's, he is exhausting, don't get me wrong, yeah. but he, there's a, there are some scenes with Marilyn in his apartment where if you didn't know any better, they actually just seem like friends yeah. and it doesn't seem weird. Mm-hmm. Even though she just showered in his bathroom <laughs> right. and is wearing a bathrobe, like it didn't seem weird. Mm-hmm. So this is a very interesting film. Like it made me think and feel a lot of it's different It's deeper things. than you think. It is deeper than you think. So watching this, would this make you want to go out and watch other uh, Marilyn movies? Oh, in fact, it makes me eager mm-hmm. um, to watch other Marilyn Monroe films. I, I think it's a bit of a shame 
that someone who clearly was a very good actress was going to get typecast in a lot of these roles Mm -hmm. because of how she looked and how she sort of rose to prominence. I think had she been able to be in some more serious roles where she wasn't being comedic, which which, let's be honest, we all know comedy is hard. It's almost harder than being a serious actor. Mm -hmm. But it would have been amazing to see her almost be femme fatale or Mm -hmm. almost be like, I don't know, a more traditionally strong woman in certain roles. Like have a roles. Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck type role. Like Barbara Stanwyck type roles. Yeah, or Ingrid, yeah I lo- and I, you know how much I love Barbara Stanwyck. Mm-hmm. So I would say it would have been lovely to see that mm-hmm. happen because I think she had the chops. She didn't, but part of it's her own her own demons because she wasn't quote-unquote professional because she, would she wouldn't show up or she'd be a diva and things like that. So, yeah. she, you know, she probably hurt herself more than helped herself. It's so sad. Yeah. Because, again, I all the documentaries I've ever watched and i'll be honest there are some really good ones yep. on netflix that that tell the story quite well mm-hmm. um but uh, i would avoid was... that other Marilyn Monroe modern one no yeah, no this is yeah. an actual documentary yeah, like and, and it's stuff, on netflix yeah. and and yeah. forgive me that i can't tell listeners yeah. what the name of it is but i watch so much on netflix but i would say look it up just mm-hmm. look up Marilyn Monroe on netflix and it it paints quite a sad picture oh, which is so unfortunate yeah. because this was a very beautiful talented person that I think lived in with her own demons, right? Yep. She struggled a lot. And it is too bad because I bet that her her career would have been pretty impressive over time. And I think she could have maybe gotten into some of these roles and that, um it would have been interesting how the sixties played yeah, out. Yeah. I would her. have been interested to see what happened. It's just a shame that it went the way that it did. Yep. Well, thank you as always. I'm glad uh you're going to check out more Marilyn Monroe movies? Absolutely. Then? What can I say, Brian? I think you're making me a fan of these older films. And the more I watch, the more I like. But you know I sort of have a you know affinity for the time period, but I didn't really ever express it in film, yeah. like through films. So now I get a chance to do that. So That's why you. it's damn good movie memories. Damn good movie memories. Thanks, everybody. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.